Amos 1, verse 1. Okay, go ahead, Devin. Thanks. All right, so what do we know about the author of the book? He was a sheep herder. <laughs> He's a sheep herder. All right, let's start out with, what's his name? Amos, okay, pretty straightforward, all right. Amos was a shepherd, okay. Stacco was the place where he was from. He had visions about what? Concerning... Israel, okay. And who's the king, or who are the kings at this time? Yeah, Uzziah and Jeroboam. All right. So, just by way of review, uh, I want to say it is, I'm thinking it is 2 Kings 17. All right, so 2 Kings 14, verse 15. It talks about uh, the rest acts of Jehoash. He died, his son Jeroboam became king in his place. And then his son Azariah, or Uzziah, becomes king. This is in, so Jeroboam's the one in Israel. Uzziah is down in Judah. And we see different things that he accomplished. Uh, we'll see more of that in Chronicles. We'll turn there in a second. Uh, 2 Kings 14, verse 23, is in the 15th year of Amaziah, son of Joash. Jeroboam became king in Samaria and reigned 41 years. He did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin. He restored the border of Israel from the entrance of Hamath to the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through his servant Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet, who was of Gath-hefer. The Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which was very bitter. There was neither bond nor free, nor was there any helper for Israel. The Lord did not say that he would blot out the name of Israel from under heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Okay, Um, there's a little bit in chapter 15 about Uzziah. He was 16, he reigned 52 years, he did right, but the high places were not taken away. The Lord struck the king, so he was a leper to the day of his death. Jotham, the king's son, was over the household. The rest of the acts are written in the book of the Chronicles of the king of Judah. So if we were to Chronicles, it is, I believe... Uh, Second Chronicles, let's see, chapter, it's toward the end of it. There's Amaziah. Chapter 26, we see more about Uzziah in Second Chronicles 26. Second Chronicles 26, we see his fights against the Philistine, his building of towers. And then toward the middle of the chapter, verse 16, when he became strong, his heart was proud that he acted corruptly. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God. He entered the temple to burn incense. Then God strikes him with leprosy. 
So that's the description of Uzziah, king of Judah. Jeroboam's description is he was like his ancestor Jeroboam, or his predecessor at least, Jeroboam, the one who seized power from Solomon's son, Rehoboam, right? So Rehoboam, Solomon's son, back when the kingdom is divided, uh, he is cruel, the people withdraw from him. This man named Jeroboam seizes power, says we're going to set up a rival system of worship. And uh, now a descendant of his, the second Jeroboam, is behaving just like the first Jeroboam, Uzziah, is permitting the worship of false gods in high places and in pride even says, I'm going to take the role of a priest. And so God strikes him with leprosy. That has not yet happened, I believe, because um, of the timing that's described here. But this is a warning to the people under two evil kings. Uh, the reference to the earthquake we see also, just uh, for sake of information, in the book of Zechariah, chapter 14. You will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And so that's an anticipation of a great earthquake in the end times that reminds them of an earthquake that happened in the days of Uzziah. So we see that uh, before the earthquake. This is chapter 1, verse 1 of Amos. Any thoughts about the setting of Amos compared to things like um, Jonah, things uh, which we'll get to later? So books like Jonah, books like what we've looked at already with Hosea and Joel. Any thoughts come to mind about what God is doing through prophets, the messages that he's giving to the people, any of those kinds of things. Norma. Okay. True. David didn't have any training to be a king either. He was a shepherd. That's an interesting parallel. Okay. What might we conclude from that? Does God need you to have a college education or a doctorate or anything like that to, to serve him? No. Do you have to have had extensive formal training to teach the Bible or to proclaim God's word? No. We should do it accurately. We should do it carefully. But it's not a question of academics because Amos was just a shepherd. David was just a shepherd. God made one king. God used another as a prophet. Okay. And again, I think it's easy to maybe have this mindset that shepherds were stupid because they weren't trained in the law and things like that. They weren't dumb because they were out there keeping sheep and all those sorts of things. They had opportunity to observe uh, God's creation. David makes extensive use of that in the poetry that he writes in the Psalms. And so... Um, I think it's easy for us to maybe have sort of this attitude that uh, degrees equals intelligence and lack of degrees means not intelligence, when in reality the main thing that God is concerned about is our willingness to serve him. All right, other thoughts here from this verse 
the beginning of the book of Amos compared to the other books. Think about the timing of when these things are happening. Okay. Yeah. So Joel talked about a locust plague, but doesn't really talk about who was reigning as king. If we were to go back to Hosea, Hosea chapter 1, it's the word of the Lord that came to Hosea during the days of four kings of Judah and during the days of Jeroboam, son of Joash, king of Israel. So, if we take the introductory verse of Hosea, the introductory verse of Amos, are they the same or a different time period? It's not meant to be a trick, trick question. Are the same kings mentioned? I would say yes. More of them are mentioned in Hosea, which seems to imply that the message God gives to Hosea is spread out over a longer period of time. Okay, But... Hosea and Amos had an overlap in their ministry. That's the point that I'm trying to make. So, this is interesting as we think about the way that God is revealing His Word. If you have um, Amos, who is among the shepherds, and you have Hosea, whose occupation is not mentioned, as I recall, it seems that mm, Hosea perhaps had a more specific role in speaking to the king of Israel or at least the leaders of the people because his actions were an illustration of their, well, his relationship to his wife's unfaithfulness was an illustration of God's relationship to the leader's unfaithfulness of the people. So there is a degree to which Hosea's message is maybe directed more toward those who are in charge of Judah, for example. But then when we come to Amos, we're going to see that he is speaking to the nations around Israel. So in that respect, is Amos more like Jonah or more like Hosea? In terms of his audience. More like Jonah. Now, the, the passage, which I don't think I had noticed until recently when we were looking at Second Chronicles, where it said, Jonah prophesied to Uzziah, the word of the Lord through Jonah said that God was going to restore the border of Israel. We think of Jonah as basically he went to the Ninevites and that's it. But we see this glimpse from Second Chronicles that God also sent him to prophesy to the king or to the people that the border of Israel was going to be restored. Which means at the end of things, even though Amos is prophesying to the nations around Judah, we are also going to see examples of him prophesying to Judah as well. So the point of saying all that is, I think it's easy for us to get in our minds that the prophet kind of stayed in one place and talked to one group of people, but the reality is God moved the prophets around according to his purpose, depending on who he wanted to give the message to. So for part of Amos, he's going to be talking to the nations around Israel and Judah. For part of it, he's going to be addressing Judah and Israel themselves. Uh, just like Jonah is sent to the Ninevites in Assyria, and then later he speaks to King Uzziah. So all of these prophets, it seems, are... We don't necessarily know if they had a close connection. Like, we don't necessarily know, did Hosea ever meet Amos? Did he, Amos ever meet Jonah? 
We just know that they were living in roughly the same time period. Amos seems to have been ministering a very specific, maybe shorter window. God says, hey, stop being a shepherd, go be a prophet. Maybe he goes back to being a shepherd afterward. A very short time period. Hosea's ministry seems to be very extensive over the reign of these four kings, a period of 20 to 25 years maybe. And then Jonah, we just see the reference to the two incidents, the one in Assyria and then the one uh, with King Uzziah. So all this to say, it's important for us to see specifically what the book is saying. And I think it's also helpful for us to consider how all these things fit together, not to spend a ridiculous amount of time on them, but just to consider how did God work through the prophets in the Old Testament and the fact that the Bible is a unified message. What I mean by that is God speaks through Amos, God speaks through Hosea, God speaks through Jonah, God speaks through Joel, different prophets in different places with overlapping ministries who are saying similar messages to a variety of groups of people. Any other thoughts from verse 1? Before we move on to the actual prophecy that he gives. So he was a shepherd. He's got a ministry to a variety of places. Yes, go ahead, Sandra. Okay. Okay. Uh, I think so. No, probably. Are you seeing a parallel between his background as a shepherd and his ministry to the people? That's true. Okay. It is interesting along that line, something that occurs to me is, um, I don't know that it's true in every instance as in we can say, oh, this experience in this Bible character's life prepared them for this later task that God had for them to do. I don't think that's always abundantly clear. But if you take someone like Joseph, for example, Joseph's a shepherd. He wasn't in charge of anything. He's not ready to be in charge of Egypt. He administrates Potiphar's household for a few years. He runs the prison for a few years. Now he's got some experience with administration so that he's not clueless when he gets put in charge of Egypt. So if that's the sort of parallel that you're developing, I think the sort of disposition or, or skills that you practice as a shepherd potentially mm, might have affected Amos' role as a prophet. That's an interesting thing to think about. Okay? Anything else? Norma? Yeah.
Yeah, there is definitely a theme in Scripture where God uses both those who are unexpected and those who are not significant from the world's assessment. All right, let's read uh, verses 2 through 5. Who can read 2 through 5 for us? Okay, Tina, thank you. Okay. Verse 2 we could potentially take as separate from 3 through 5 in that God is roaring from Zion, Jerusalem, Carmel. Those are all things associated with events in Israel, right? Mount Carmel is, I believe, where the thing happens with Elijah and, and Ahab and the prophets of Baal. Uh, Zion and Jerusalem are obviously associated with Judah. So let's take 3 through 5 as the... Um, the prophecy towards Syria. What is God saying to Syria? Clarification, Syria is not a Syria. Syria tended to be more nomadic. Uh, the Assyrians ended up being an empire that built several significant cities, of which Nineveh is the greatest, and established like this kingdom. What's the problem with Syria? What's God's response to them? Verse 3. Jonathan. Okay. Okay. Uh-huh. Fascinating, he uses the imagery of threshing. He's like, you were threshed the people with your swords, and so now fire will consume you. Interesting imagery, like agricultural, but also war, all mixed up together. Um, the references to places like Damascus, Avon, Beth Eden, going in exile to Kerr, these were significant places in the land of Syria. So God's basically saying these things that your capital city and all of these other places that you view as secure are going to be attacked and overcome and destroyed. How does God describe what Damascus did, what Syria did, at the first, first phrase or two there, verse 3? Calls it transgressions, right? We're going to see this formula for three transgressions and for four all throughout chapters 1 and 2. And this is sort of a poetic way of saying for all of your sins, I think. Uh, God has a list. God is reckoning with them against it. Okay?
So, just as the Israelites were conquered and raided and so forth, the people of Syria will go away into exile themselves. All right? Uh, verses 6 through 8. Who can read 6 through 8 for us? Braden, good. Right, who's verse 6 through 8 prophesying against? Okay, look at verse 8, the end of verse 8. The remnant of the Philistines, okay? Philistines had several significant fortified cities. Gaza, Ashdod, Ashkelon, Ekron. There was a fifth one that I'm not remembering the name of. These were their secure cities. They tended to be raiders as well, but they had these five significant cities. God's basically saying, I'm going to come knock down your cities and destroy them because you came and raided my people, took them into captivity, sold them in slavery to deport them to Edom. Now the same sort of thing is going to happen to you. So, again, transgression is the reason. The punishment is correlated to actions they took against God's people. All right, how about verses 9 and 10? Who wants to read that? Verses 9 and 10. Evan? Okay. Tyre and Sidon, what was their specific problem that they did? Parallel to the Philistines, right? They deported people into slavery, into exile to Edom, despite the fact that they had a connection to that group that they did it to. And then we come to Edom herself in verses 11 and 12. Who wants to read that? 11 and 12? Bruce, go ahead. This is the war for three transgressions of the and before I will not revoke his punishment, because he pursued his brother with the sword, while he stifled his compassion. His anger also tore continually, and he maintained his fury forever. Yeah, verse 12 too, please. Amid 
right, so we see verses 11 and 12. Why did God punish Edom? Mary? Yeah, so allies or related nations, they went after them, didn't show compassion, had ongoing anger. So again, a listing of their cities that God was going to destroy. And then we had also the Ammonites. What was their specific crime? Verse 13. Okay. Yeah, so Gilead, they, they raided against Gilead. So Gilead is sort of this outpost that's been attacked, uh, described in verse 3 about the Syrians. It's to the north. Same thing for the Ammonites. They attacked, cruelly attacked God's people to expand their borders, and uh, they would be consumed as well, and their king and princes would go into exile. Okay? Uh, read verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. Who wants to do that for us? Chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. Ben, I see you raising your hand there. So some of these are seeming to be God's retribution against nations who attacked who? Israel or Judah, right? But then some of them, God is holding them account for the way they behaved against their neighbors, even who were not God's chosen people. What can we learn from that? What should we conclude from that? Okay, yeah, so you have nations who are pagan nations. God's concerned about how they behave toward one another. Even though the Bible often has a strong emphasis on how nations pertain to God's people, there is a sense in which God has made all the nations of the earth and he's also concerned with how they behave toward one another. Which is really interesting because I think on a personal level, we're not called to correct every wrongdoing that one unbeliever does toward another or necessarily to try to force unbelievers to conform to what God wants. And yet there's a sense in which that is God's goal, that is God's command on them, that's what God requires of them, and he holds them to account when they don't do it. So, for example, um, if you have coworkers who swear and take God's name in vain, it's likely that you're not going to be extremely successful by just yelling at them every time that they do it and getting them to stop. But there is a sense in which, nonetheless, they are disobeying God and dishonoring Him, and God will eventually hold them to account for it as well, right? On a national scale, though, what we see here is God holding nations to account for their behavior toward one another. <coughs> Excuse me. So, we might think, reading chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2, that God 
is concerned about these pagan nations and their sins toward one another and toward Israel. But then we come to chapter 2, verse 4. Exact same formula for three transgressions and for four. I will not revoke its punishment. But who's he talking to now in verse 4? Judah. Their specific um, grounds for punishment. They rejected the law of the Lord. They have not kept his statutes. Their lies have led them astray after which their fathers walked. So I will send fire upon Judah and it will consume the citadels of Jerusalem. I'm not sure if this should be what it reminds me of, but there's a lot of parallels, I think, between Amos and Romans 1 through 3. Here's the point that I'm making. Paul in Romans 1 says, All of the Gentile nations walk in wickedness. They've ignored what's true and obvious about God. All people possess a conscience, but they suppress its voice that accuses them. And then he concludes by saying, all people are sinners going their own way, forsaking God, etc. Amos seems to be doing a very similar thing. You have the transgressions of the people of Syria, of the Philistines, of Tyre and Sidon, of Edom, of the Ammonites, of Moab, all of these nations, they're sinners. And it would have potentially been very easy for God's people to say, obviously, they deserved what was coming to them. They were doing wrong. The reason I say it would be easy for us to conclude that, or for them to conclude that in their day, is what was Jonah's perspective on it, which we'll get to Jonah later, but what was his perspective? The Assyrians deserve every last bit that's coming to them. But that doesn't, while all these nations around Israel were guilty, the Israelites themselves were clearly guilty as well. Look at verse 6. Thus says the Lord, For three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke its punishment, because they sell the righteous for money and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who pant after the very dust of the earth on the head of the helpless and turn aside the way of the humble. What's the first accusation God has against them for how they've behaved? Okay? There seems to be this oppression of the needy, but yes, their fellow Israelites, they, instead of saying, hey, you're a fellow Israelite, it's a time of need, let me leave some in the field so that you can glean, let me come alongside you and offer you a cloak, let me give you a drink of water, they say, you know what? You can't pay? Work until you can pay. However long it takes. I think when we set a passage like that in the context of what Jesus says about a cup of cold water and food to eat toward those who, um, like the, our behavior toward the people around us reflects our attitude toward God, I think it puts it in a whole different light. Because there is that extended accusation of Jesus saying, I never knew you to a group of people. And the basis for it was they had opportunity to do good toward their own people in this context, and they refused to do it. Those who chose to do that, Jesus says that's a mark of a right relationship with me that reflects that you actually know and believe and follow me. 
What other sin does Israel do? It says, A man and his father resort to the same girl in order to profane my holy name. On garments taken as pledges, they stretch out beside every altar, and in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. So what's going on here? Yeah, so I think the end of verse 7 is pretty obvious. There is immorality. And then God sees in that a profaning of his holy name, which I think is why Paul makes such a big deal of it in 1 Corinthians 5 when it happens in the church, right? He's saying, you should know better from the example of Israel. You should know better because even pagans realize this is not the way to behave, although they sometimes do it. Um... So there is, there is a possibility of this being a, based on verse 8, if 7 and 8 are connected, there's a possibility of this being a kind of temple prostitution, or it could just be just a sort of straightforward kind of a thing that, uh, like Rahab and others that we see, it was common in the land of Canaan. The reason I think that maybe there's a religious component to it is verse 8, garments taken as pledges. Here's the sort of the, the bringing together of these two ideas. Here's my poor neighbor who has no grain. I'm like, hey, I'll give you enough grain to sow your field, but you have to give me the shirt off your back as guarantee that you're going to, get, you're going to pay me back. They take the garment off their poor neighbor's back stretch out on it and commit commit immorality. Next to an altar, presumably for a pagan god, because besides every altar, it seems to be set in contrast to and in the house of their god. So pagan altars that they've set up all throughout the land, they're stealing the clothes off their poor neighbor's back and then using that as a couch for their immorality to worship pagan gods. Then they come over to God's house And they say, hey, you haven't been able to keep up with what you're supposed to do on your payments. I'm going to collect a portion of your wine. They take the wine, they get drunk in the temple or the tabernacle. There's possibly some other things going on there, but I think that's the basic basic idea of it. So, it's very interesting because God is calling into account the Philistines and so forth, And there's a degree to which we expect God to punish the Philistines because they were pagans and they insisted on worshiping fish gods and other nonsense, right? And yet, there's a degree to which I think we are almost sympathetic with the Philistines and the people of Tyrant's Eye and all that sort of thing because for the most part, they don't know better. That pagan worship is all they've ever known. And while it deserves punishment and God does hold them to account, there's a degree of ignorance about their idolatry and immorality. But what's God's accusation against the people of Israel? Verse 9, I destroyed the Amorite before them, though his height was like the height of cedars. I, verse 10, brought you up from the land of Egypt and led you in the wilderness 40 years to take possession of the land. Verse 11, I raised up your sons to be prophets and to be Nazarites. Is this not so? 
Had God ever done anything good for the people of Israel? Should be an obvious question. He delivered them from Egypt. He conquered their enemies. He gave them the land. He appointed prophets to speak his word to them and remind them of who he was. Verse 12. You made the Nazarites drink wine, and you commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I am weighed down beneath you as a wagon weighed down when filled with sheaves. I sent you prophets, I gave you abundance, and you saw an, an opportunity to corrupt those I sent to warn you of the truth and to stifle my true worship so that none would pursue it the way they should. What's the consequence? Flight will perish from the swift. The stalwart will not strengthen his power, nor the mighty man save his life. He who grasps the bow will not stand his ground. The swift of foot will not escape nor he who rides the horse save his life. Even the bravest among the warriors will flee naked in that day, declares the Lord. God's people knew better and deliberately turned aside from him and dragged other people down into their idolatry and immorality and rejection of God. The nations around God, there was a sense in which they didn't know better, although there were moments of God warning them. But, but here's the thing. If the people of Israel had done what God called them to do, which is to be a light to the nations around them, instead of getting trapped in the same sort of sinful practices that all the nations around them did, they would have been in a position of strength that God would have defended them such that the people in Gilead would not have died and their borders would not have been threatened and then God would not have then in turn had to punish these nations for the wrong they did to Israel because the Israelites would have been in a position of security and they would have been the ones who were testifying to God and the nations would have feared them because they feared God. So the reason for all this calamity in Amos 1 and 2 ultimately comes back to, I think, the sinfulness of the Israelites. They turned away from God. God said in Deuteronomy, if you turn away from me, the nations will conquer you. But because God is a just God, when the nations conquer and then go too far, it's one thing to kill men in battle. It's another thing to kill pregnant women and children. The occasion of the judgment on the nations, I think, was rooted in the disobedience of the people of Israel and Judah. But at the very least, we can clearly see from the chapter, they are sinners like the rest of them. So, verse 3 and, and on through the rest of the book kind of is an extended development of these accusations that God has. But what can we conclude from these first two chapters that we've looked at here as we wrap up right now? Does our relationship with God have a broader impact than just on our own lives? Yes, Norma. Okay. Yeah. If we fail in our responsibility, there is at the very least a discipline, and if we don't genuinely know God, then a punishment. But that punishment is designed to lead toward repentance, I think we see. We'll see that more in Second Peter 3 that we look at here in a bit. 
Anything else that we observe or, or think about as we conclude this chapter? Devin? Okay. The minor prophets give us a picture of God being impartial, not playing favorites, though he has chosen Israel. Evan? Yeah. Yeah. Again, going to Romans and 1 Corinthians, why did God write all these things down? For us to learn from them so that we would not sin in the same way that they did, or positively so we can see those who followed after God so we can walk in their example, right? Okay. Anything else? Norma. Okay. I think I know what you're saying, but can you explain that a little more? Like we see God holding people accountable or these things make us like we know it so then we're accountable for what we know? Okay. Yeah. Good. Yep. All right. We will wrap up there for today. We'll continue with probably chapters 3 and 4 because these chapters are fairly short. Uh, Next week and uh, pick up with that in Amos next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these reminders that you are a just God, that you hold people accountable for what they do, and that we should neither think that we are without sin nor fail to repent when we see the things that we are failing to do or doing that displease you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.